a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and once again, overseeing a distributed operations operation of Intrepid Podcast. But, you know, there's been a number of developments in the last, you know, couple of months since we did one of these news podcasts. So I'm really lucky to be joined by Leah West, uh, of course, my colleague at Carleton University, and Michael Nesbitt, who is at University of Calgary and joined us uh, very recently to talk about uh, counting white nationalist terrorists. So it's great to have you both on the podcast because I know how busy you both are. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much as always, Stephanie. So Leah, let's start with you. Uh, you have a, a really interesting kind of piece of news and it has to do with something called a Wilson application. And when I think of Wilson application, I keep thinking of that movie Castaway with Tom <laughs> Hanks where he has that little volleyball called Wilson. And so every time I, 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 I hear you say that, I think of him just screaming Wilson. So yeah. um, can you please- This is how, how that volleyball got the role for that. <laughs> he made a Wilson application. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, I don't think that's actually what we're talking about today. But um, okay. we have learned that there's going to be a Wilson application in, potentially in a major national security case. So do you want to talk about what that is? Well, actually, a Wilson application was made. So um, I'm going to talk about a case that um, was going on when I was with Department of Justice and that uh, two of my colleagues are working on in, in, as a defense counsel. Um, in the Ansel Peshteri um, case, um, an individual in Ottawa being um, uh, charged with various terrorism offenses um, for his role in facilitating the travel of, of people abroad, his alleged uh, role in that, including pretty infamous individuals, including John McGuire and others. And um, his defense counsel, he's being represented by Fadi Mansour and Solomon Frieden of, uh, of, of a law firm of Edelson Friedman and Black here in Ottawa. And um, not surprisingly, as we, we know is common in these cases, there was a uh, CSIS wiretap involved um, that fed into an RCMP investigation and led to RCMP wiretaps, which is, you know, um, the common intelligence evidence, everybody drink um, situation that we talk about so often. And um, in this case, um, instead of just going to the trial judge and challenging the, the warrant on the basis of its constitutionality and whether or not any of it um, shouldn't have followed because there are violations of, of, of the warrant's reasonableness or um, various other reasons under a test we call Garofoli. Um, his lawyers actually went back to the federal court judge and challenged the original CSIS warrant themselves, which is totally new and interesting from an evidentiary process kind of standpoint because it hadn't happened since prior to the charter, really. Very few cases anyway. But the interesting thing that's arisen in the last week is that the Wilson application hadn't led to anything. The warrant had stood. The judge in the federal court, Justice O'Reilly, had um, dismissed the motion, basically challenging the warrant. Um, and in this case, what we found out last week was there was an order brought forward that apparently CSIS had new evidence um, and I say this, it's interesting because this case has been going on for years. They had new evidence that might cause, well, that is causing the judge to reconsider his decision about, about the underlying CSIS warrant. So um, we didn't talk about the specifics of the case, but the Wilson application is just such an interesting 
new addition to the intelligence to evidence kind of landscape that I wanted to talk to the lawyers that um, were responsible for bringing it back. And right. So, so yeah, so that's awesome because you did actually went and spoke with them and we're going to play now that interview that you did that effectively is explaining what's happening. Correct. Hi, I'm Leah West and I am high above Elgin Street in um, the law offices of Edelson Friedman and Black. And I'm here today to ask a friend and colleague about a really interesting evidentiary issue um, called a Wilson application. And we'll talk a little bit uh, about why I'm asking this question after the fact, but I am here with my friends Solomon and Fadi. Um, Fadi, can you introduce yourself, please? Hello, my name is Fadi Mansour. I'm a criminal defense lawyer working at Edelson Freeman Black. So, um, as Intrepid Podcast listeners know, we are slightly obsessed with issues revol revolving around uh, intelligence to evidence. Um, so if you are playing our drinking game, get ready to drink. Um, one of the issues oh. that um, typically kind of invokes intelligence to evidence issues, things that we talk about very often, is when CSIS and RCMP work together on um, national security law cases and uh, CSIS shares information with the RCMP that ends up in a wiretap. For example, often things that arrive from a CSIS wiretap and end up in an RCMP wiretap. So Fadi, with that kind of contextual background in mind, we're talking about wiretap issues here. What is a Wilson application? I have all kinds of thoughts about all of that, but let, let's go to Wilson. So Wilson was what predated the charter, which is the right of the authorizing court to rescind a warrant that it issues um, based on a fraudulent misrepresentation that it becomes aware of later. So a warrant issues um, back then before the charter, you don't have a section eight, so you can't bring a Garofoli. Um, so instead there was this right, because it's an ex parte application to begin with, meaning the one side has gone and gotten a warrant with no side opposing it, you can later go back to the authorizing court and go, authorizing court, you were misled. Um, there's some fraud that happened and you should take back your warrant. So you mentioned Garofoli. Can you just talk about what that is very briefly for our non-legal geeks? Sure, um, which there's lots of. Um, one, when Section 8 first comes out and the court is struggling with what are the bounds of what the police can do, um, Garofoli comes out with a Supreme Court case which says when a warrant is issued, you can challenge it to say it shouldn't have been issued either because there was an, a misrepresentation or two, um, something that the affiant should have known but didn't and didn't put into the warrant. And so on a more basic level, you get the warrant, you take a look at the grounds for it, and you determine, should it have issued? Um, you don't have to show that he was, he being the affiant, uh, was intentionally misleading. You just have to show that ultimately it shouldn't have issued. And in a national security case, when we talk about the context of CISA sharing information with the RCMP, which warrant is the Garofoli usually brought in on? Well, that's a difficult question. Um, usually, from our perspective, you bring it on everything that you can because you want to quash everything. Um, and so you bring it on what the very first warrant that starts everything, hoping to quash that one. And the general rule under Section 8 is once one warrant is found to be a breach of Section 8, whatever information arises out of that is then excised from any subsequent warrants. Um, and usually because they're cascading, if one falls, the rest will fall, usually. So just to back up, Section 8 is your, your protection against unreasonable search and seizure. And very often under the law, um, it's found that if a search is um, subject to a prior judicial authorization or a warrant, the search, as long as it's carried out, 
carried out reasonably will not violate Section 8. So this is a way of saying, even though it did issue under a warrant, there's something here that makes this search unreasonable and then in violation of Section 8. Is that right? Right. And there can be all kinds of things that you raise on Section 8. Um, There's whole multi-volume books on the subject, but on, on a basic level, you can do a few things. One, you can attack facial validity. So you can look at it and say, even if everything is true that the affiant is saying, the authorizing court was wrong to say this meets the level of reasonable and probable grounds. Either there was no offense committed, there weren't reasonable and probable grounds, RPG, that an offense was committed, or two, there was no RPG that you would actually find evidence of that offense. Um, on a subfacial level, you actually go behind what the affiant said. So you say, the affiant said they observed X, Y, and Z, or that some member of their surveillance observed X, Y, and Z. And then you get the surveillance notes, and it's like, yeah, but they left out like the rest of that day. And without the rest of the context, it looks a lot worse than it is. So they should have told the authorizing court all kinds of stuff. So then we amplify, uh, which meaning we tell the authorizing, the reviewing court rather, here is what should have been before the authorizing court. And in our view, once you amplify it, once you show them what should have been there, um, you no longer have RPG. So when you're doing a, let's well, say, a typical Garofoli, um, as opposed to a Wilson, which we'll talk a bit about more, um, the what what additional challenges arise when CSIS is one of the parties uh, that's obtained a warrant? Well, on a more on most basic level, CSIS is not a party to the proceeding in the same way that the Crown is. And so uh, most of the case law that has arisen, although there's no appellate authority on this yet, is, well, what is CSIS's status on these applications? And so far, the case law said they're third parties, meaning, as the defense, you don't have a right to first-party disclosure. So you have to justify everything you want to get. But it's a bit of a a catch-22 because when the Supreme Court was imagining Garofoli and was talking about, like, you're going to get to challenge these warrants, they specifically said, but don't worry, you're going to get the whole file. So you get the whole file, you look at it, you look at the warrant, and you say, did the police mislead? Should they have included other things? And that's how you challenge these things. But then you come into the CSIS context and you don't get the whole file because there's all kinds of things that you don't have. And in order to get them, you have to have grounds under a third-party records application. And so if I don't have it to begin with, how do I come up with my grounds to get it? Um, And so it becomes quite difficult. Right. And just to back up on the disclosure obligation, so in a criminal court proceeding, the accused has the right under a case law called Stinchcom under Section 7 to all the material that's relevant to his case that's in the Crown's possession. But the point Fatty is making is that in, in under that rule, CSIS is not typically considered the crown unless they get very intertwined into the into the investigation with the RCMP, which is something that CSIS strives to avoid. So um, why would someone choose, like yourself, choose to bring a Wilson application to the federal court rather than bringing a Garofoli application? You know, th- there's a few different answers to, to that. But one is, that's the court that issued the warrant to begin with. And so um, the government chose to give them the authority under that legislation to issue the warrants. And so presumably they have the expertise and the know-how to issue the warrant under that specific legislation. But two, they already have a system in place for amicus to be able to assist with all the things that are going to be redacted, Section 38 protected, etc. And so it's a two-part reason, but I think that the strongest reason is if you're going to challenge what CSIS is doing, you go to the place where they are constantly looking at CSIS day in and day out and what they're doing, and they can decide from a public policy perspective what is or isn't okay and what is or isn't misleading. Um, and on a bigger perspective, they can talk about, well, 
here is what we should or shouldn't do going forward. Uh, here's your obligations. And to your knowledge, are Wilson applications common? And if not, what do you think that is? In my research, I haven't found a case that um, was able used Wilson in the same in a national security context. Right, um, because most people take the view that Wilson's dead. Post charter, there's really no reason. And most academics write that why would you bring a Wilson application? It's so much harder. Why don't you just bring a Section Eight? It's a lower threshold. You get more remedies. Uh, so why won't you just bring a Section 8? Now, all of those academics and, and case law arises because you're not considering it in this context where you have a separate court that issued the warrant that doesn't, the Supreme Court doesn't have jurisdiction to issue the CSIS Act warrants, and so you don't have that dual system. Um, and so normally, I would agree, like I, in, in a normal criminal case, I'm not bringing a Wilson application. Right, because you're going to go to the, I mean, in a normal criminal case, you'd be going basically to the same court that issued the warrant to bring your Wilson application when a Garofoli would be easier. But here you've got two different courts, a different court that issued the original warrant versus a different court that would be assessing the Section 8 implications. So you're saying, let's go back to that original court that issued the warrant because it makes more sense in this context. Right, and because one of the questions for the federal court is going to be like, what is the duty that the CSIS affiant had that we're saying is, has been breached? And who's best to decide that duty than the federal court? Right. Um, because if we're going to be alleging you not only did something wrong, but like you actually intentionally misled the authorizing court, the court is going to have to struggle with what are your duties? When are you? When do you have to come back to us? What do you have to tell us? And in in some ways, the superior court really isn't well suited to determine that. The and Parliament has said that they think the federal court is best suited to decide those questions by giving them the sole discretion to issue those warrants. And the federal court's been very clear, especially recently, about uh, CSIS and the counsel for the Department of Justice bringing applications in their duty of candor. So um, this is definitely something that would be top of mind for the federal court as well. Right, and I guess from, from an advocacy perspective, if you're going to go and try and allege someone has done something wrong, you want to go to the to the person that has already said they've done something wrong. <laughs> okay, I think that's it, unless you have anything else you want to add, Patty? No, thank you very much for having me. So Leah, I listened to that with a lot of interest. Um, now, I'm going to try and Oshawa this. So it's my understanding that basically there's kind of two ways to uh, challenge a warrant. Uh, you have, of course, you know, there's a, what I loved about that clip is that it has some of our old favorites in it. It has Garofoli, um, it has a bunch of, of other Stinchcombs in there. Right. All, all, we're playing all the, the classic hits on this one. But effectively, what's come out is that normally, if you were to challenge a warrant, you would do it under Section 8, under the, the Garofoli decision, which we've definitely talked about before. But because of the bifurcated system we have where one court's looking at the criminal case and one court's kind of looking at the evidence in uh, be because of the, the security issues in this particular case surrounding the warrant those those two processes have to be separate under our system we're, we're seeing the use of this wilson application which effectively says that you know if new evidence or you know if it comes to light that the basis of the uh, the basis of the warrant would not have been issued in the first place, then all, all that kind of information that's been used is, is invalid. So basically, and, and the problem there is, and, and again, this is my understanding, so I look forward to you correcting me, that if the warrant is, the original warrant is, is problematic, which I think is the, what's being asserted in this case, that then all the other warrants attached to it are in fact invalid, and therefore any evidence attached to those warrants would have in effect be 
quashed and, and not allowed to be used in the criminal trial. That's the de defense's aim, realistically, right? To right. go to the very first warrant, to go to the court that issued the very first warrant for CSIS that seeded all of the subsequent investigative tools that were used by CSIS and the RCMP and say that there was fraud there in that original warrant application um, and that and had the judge known all of the information or had, excuse me, had the fraud not occurred, the warrant would not have issued. And the judge had said, you know, uh, no, I'm not going to hear this application. But now CSIS is bringing up new evidence that, make, that is causing the judge to reconsider that. But the interesting thing in all of this is that the defense counsel will not be a party to... Um, will not automatically get to know what that new evidence is because that new evidence in and itself might be classified and there may be um, assertions of Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act to prohibit the disclosure of that information to Mr. Pesteri and his counsel. So this, um, this intelligence to evidence circus is, is not uh, close to being over. Well, I'm glad we can still continue to drink. Um, just a, a quick follow-up to that. Does this mean that it would be disclosed to a special advocate who would be uh, basically arguing on Peshtari's behalf? It would be an amicus in this amicus, case. Amicus, right. Yeah. And so actually... But not the owl amicus that I love. No, not the Supreme Court's... Um, um, Adorable mascot. No. In this case, Mr. Ian Carter, who is appointed as amicus, was actually the one who originally brought the issue before the court because, um, funnily enough, the court said, well, it clearly wouldn't be in CSIS's interest to be, bring a motion to have this issue reheard. So the amicus brought it, which is, you know, kind of interesting because typically amicus don't bring motions. Um, They're there to support the court. So all of this is very interesting and it's new ground, but it stems from two profs who teach evidence at UOttawa digging into the histories of, of evidence law and, and bringing it back. That's, uh, you know, we, we do like the old school hits on this podcast. Yes. So in which case then, uh, Mike, let's move to you because you have another uh, take on another case that came out at the end of last year that we didn't really have a chance to go into. And this is uh, the Alley case, which I believe is the case of the individual who a few years ago um, went into a uh, recruitment center for the Canadian forces and tried to conduct an attack. And... Um, he was someone, and, and you mentioned this uh, to me to me briefly, this is someone who uh, appears to have um, pled guilty, but not to any of the actual terrorism offenses. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, so uh, what, what's the, and, and, but there's something about this case that, that's not sitting well with you. And so I'm kind of curious to hear you unpack this. Yeah, there's a couple of things. So, so this individual did conduct an attack. He went in, he was assaulting a, what appears to be from the case to be a security guard. And then in the course of that individual fighting back and another individual getting involved, he pulls out a knife and tries to stab those two individuals and then chases a third individual down the hall and tries to stab them. So he's charged with a host of offenses, as you can imagine. Fun, fun fact, that's my recruiting center. That's where I joined the military in that building. Anyways, carry on, Michael. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's okay. That's, that's an interesting fun fact. Okay. So, so he is, so, so he's charged with, with these fairly serious offenses. And on top of that, he's charged with terrorism. Uh, and in particular, the commission of an offense for a terrorist group, which is 83.2 for those following along in their criminal codes. And 
What happens even before we get to trial is there's an agreement between the Crown and the defense. And the agreement is after medical evaluations by two individuals that this individual is schizophrenic. He suffers from schizophrenia and that he will plead guilty to the criminal offenses, not the terrorism one. He'll plead, he'll plead guilty to the other criminal offenses, but in the course of doing so, they will agree to what we call colloquially a NCR application. So we're not criminally responsible. So what that means essentially is at the end, you it's, it's not like a punishment. In fact, sometimes it can be for longer than what your jail term would be. It means you go to jail and, or it means you go to hospital, sorry, right? Essentially. And so, and then you're under supervision and your, your underlying mental illness is treated in hospital. Uh, in as opposed to just being sent into prison where th there would be all sorts of problems, including there's no treatment for the individual necessarily, there might be safety concerns for the prison guards, for the other prisoners, for this individual, certainly. And so the first interesting thing that comes up to me when I'm reading this is how the heck do they get to proceeding on the terrorism charge? So they, so the, the defense, I think, is is understandably saying, we're happy to plead guilty to the other stuff because he obviously did it. He attacked these individuals with knives, but it was due to his schizophrenia. And we have both a defense and a prosecution expert, medical expert who comes in and, and says this. And, and then the Crown says, okay, well, please plead guilty to the terrorism as well. And they say, well, hold on a second. Look at what terrorism is, right? And so if we've talked about this before on the show, but boy, there's all these elements of terrorism that make it look like it would be hard to form the necessary predicates, right? So for a terrorist activity, for example, you have to have committed something in whole or in part for political, religious, or ideological purpose. So you have to, you have, to have come up with a particular ideological purpose that is driving your actions with the intention to intimidate the public or a segment thereof and not just attack individuals that intentionally causes death or serious bodily harm and dangerous person life and so on. And so I think the first interesting thing to me in this case is how, how do we not drop these charges? If we're saying this guy is NCR on the other stuff, then why are we proceeding on terrorism, which I think is what the defense is saying. So if you're saying that this person is not criminally responsible, how could he possibly have formulated a terrorism motive? A, a extremely complex terrorism motive. That's right. right. And, and, to, and to say that's driving it too, right? And then this gets us into what I think is a little bit of an absurdity, which is a pair of experts, medical experts on the stand trying to determine whether he's just really, really religious or really, really ideological, or whether it's better defined as his schizophrenia is driving his actions. Uh, Sorry, this was the court case? This is in the court case. So this, is, so this is a judge trying to make use of medical psychiatrists trying to determine what is driving it and debating you know, essentially the difference between, okay, what is, what is someone who is really stringent in their views as compared to someone who is mentally ill? So we're pretty close to jumping the shark in, in my mind in terms of determining what is going on in, in the case. If, if our criminal code asks that we get medical practitioners in to make those sort of differentiations, um, that's probably not a place where a court wants to be. So in any event, he, they, they proceed with the terrorism charge under 83.2 and it gets thrown out. And it gets thrown out on a rather technical legal 
ground, which is that under 83.2, it says the commission of an offense for a terrorist group. And a terrorist group is defined as a terrorist entity in the criminal code, and terrorist entity is, is defined as a person or persons. And so what the Crown has said is, you were committing these, these attacks on behalf of a terrorist group, and then you have to point to the terrorist group. And who's the terrorist group here? It's you. Why are, so you're committing these attacks on behalf of you as the terrorist group. That's and, not, that's not how that works though. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, well, it's tautological is what it sounds like in the first instance, which the, the court of appeal comes out and says, but the way the crown approaches it is consistent with our longtime understanding of this, which is that very specifically, we defined terrorist group as terrorist entity and terrorist entity as an individual or individuals. So we were very clear from the get-go, and it's always been understood, you know, I've always taught in my class, that could be one or more persons, because the literal reading is one or more persons. And what, what the, so what they're saying is, look, it's always been that case. Look at the drafting. The drafting is very intentional. And the drafting says it can be one person or it can be more than one person. So all we're saying here is it's one person. And as you say, that's not how that works. Well, that's what the defense is thinking. The defense is thinking, yeah, that's fine for maybe some of the other terrorism charges. But for the commission of an offense to have the individual wrapped up with the group on behalf of whom he's acting doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense. And so this goes to the Court of Appeal and the Court of Appeal agrees with the defense and the trial court. That is to say, it must be a different group than the individual who is acting to make out the commission offense. So they say, yeah, I understand that the wording is clear, but statutory interpretation is just is not just about a decontextualized plain reading of the words. And if you look at it in the context of section 83.2, and you, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say, you're committing an offense on behalf of a terrorist group. Who's the terrorist group? It's you. So you're, you're committing a terrorist offense on behalf of you, which makes it t terrorist. In other words, it starts to look sort of circular so so they say okay this is this is sort of tricky and we wait, wait, sorry is this, no in your view is this the actual reading of the legislation because i mean it's basically i mean that idea that you know you're doing this on behalf of the terrorist group who's the terrorist group it's you right i mean i i'd never really thought of it that way i always thought okay well mm -hmm. you have a terrorist group and you're kind of acting on their behalf now and you can do so in one of three ways you can actually be directed by that group you can seek permission of the group and then formulate your own plan or you can just do it in the name of their ideology is yeah, so that were, not the case you were directed by yourself so so this is where it's legitimately tricky and why it gets appealed because because both sides have arguments and on the one hand you're absolutely right and this doesn't make it a whole lot of sense to have the terrorist group and the individual all wrapped up into one thing under an offense, which is commission of an indictable offense on behalf of some other group when there is no other group at all. On the other hand, the Crown is right that from the beginning, we have always considered a terrorist group to be one person or more persons. That's literally how we defined a terrorist group. And in this case, we're dealing with a terrorist group. So they're saying, you know, our, our drafting has been consistent and our, and they don't quite get into it, but the understanding has been consistent for quite some time that a terrorist group could be one person.
And so this is why it's a little bit controversial because the, the court has to then decide between a very literal interpretation of the statute as drafted or a contextual understanding of what makes sense for what they must have been intending at the time and how this offense should be interpreted. So I guess my, my question though is, yeah, it's just this, it's like, it, this is kind of flipping everything on its head. It's the idea that, um, you know, if you read just basically 8301, yeah. it says that, you know, if you commit something for a political, ideological or religious cause. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, like a, that's, a, that's that's terrorist activity. That's the chapeau. So, I mean, that's the chapeau piece to all the other terrorism legislation that we have. So well, is, that, it, is that not good enough? It, well, is that so, what the court's saying? Well, so this is, this is the next question. But it, it, in, in this case, it's a separate question. But I think that's what we want to get into in terms of the implication. So there are two predicates for most terrorism offenses, for all terrorism offenses. And one is terrorist activity. So you facilitated a terrorist activity, which is one you're talking about. And the other is participation in a terrorist group, or in this case, commission of an offense on behalf of a terrorist group. And so we don't get into, at least directly, we don't get into the terrorist activity there. The question is, do you have a terrorist group? Not, is this a terrorist activity in the first instance? Okay, that, so we're kind of flipping it over. Is there a group rather than is there an activity? That's right. So, so we're what, not asking, what? is there an activity? We're asking, did you do an activity, any activity or crime? Yeah. And was it commissioned on, or was it was the commission of that crime on behalf of this group? And so the question for the court really is only, what's a group? Can the group and the commissioner be one and the same? Or do you have to have a separate group from the person who's committing the action? And the court said? And the court says you have to have a separate group from the individual. Okay, and this is an Ontario court that said this? This is Ontario, yeah. Is this, set, is this some kind of precedent setting decision? Yeah, so this is the first time we've seen this for commission of a terrorism offense. And is that going to impact our ability to, or potentially impact our ability to uh, prosecute lone actors? Yes, and so maybe. <laughs> but, but that's the implication that I want to get into. And so I hope our listeners will bear with me because I, I've tried to come up with a succinct way of explaining what my worries are. And, and in a, at a broad level, my worries are, it's really hard to understand this legislation. And it's not clear to me that anyone in the process is fully understanding the legislation, which is a really bad thing for law, right? If and you mean crown, clear. defense, judge, everyone? I, everyone. everyone. <laughs> I, I don't, I honestly don't know. And so I even, I, you know, I asked Leah beforehand, can you explain, we'll get into a separate offense in the second, but can you explain something to me? Because I, it, it's been years of following this and I'm not, if I'm being honest with you and your listeners, I'm not quite following some of these offenses and how they're working. So, so let's, let's, let's play with the implications. So the implication here is at least for the commission of a indictable offense on behalf, on behalf of a terrorist group, you can't have lone actors. That means the Unabomber is not a terrorist for these purposes in Canada. Take that a step farther. We're having an awful time, as we've already discussed, prosecuting far-right extremism many of whom tend to act by themselves. By themselves, or at least in groups that, as you said before, are harder to investigate because they're, they're constantly fractured, right? Right. And so they're, they're forming new groups, so we don't know that. But it's much easier to just point to, you like ISIS, you're acting on behalf of ISIS, here's a bunch of ISIS material, 
therefore we're imputing the ideology of ISIS to you and the intentions of ISIS to you, and we find you guilty. If it's some brand new group that's just fractured off of two other brand new groups, and the individual right. sorting acting alone, but sort of reading a bunch of transnational far-right extremist materials, that's been trickier so far for prosecutors, let alone, it hasn't even gotten to the court for that. So the result is, if you have a lone actor, or if you have someone who looks like a lone actor, and the first thing that comes to mind for me is, is far right, at least historically, which we're already having trouble prosecuting, then it looks to me like you can't prosecute that under 83.2 Commission of a Terrorist Defense. What is so that? So the courts are making, are, are making this harder. Well, so someone's made this harder. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's a court decision. We could go back and blame the drafters, too. I think we don't want to put blame. Look, they were working quickly, and it's a complicated provision. But we might look back and say how this is playing out is causing some confusion. Because my concern now is we're already not prosecuting far right. We're already struggling with prosecuting individuals with terrorism after they've committed the offense. And now the most obvious provision to prosecute not for the left of bang stuff, right? We already have that participation in the group, facilitation of activity, the preemptive stuff. But this is the, you went out and committed an attack and we're saying that attack that's already happened, it's kinetic, it's right of bang, right? You're trying to stab someone. The most obvious prosecution for that was 83.2 of the criminal code, which is commission for a terrorist group. And now what we've said is lone actors and possibly a whole swath of far-right extremists don't fall into that. So they are not terrorists in Canadian law in practice if they commit the offense. Can I just jump They're, in, um, yeah. Mike? And I, again, uh, this might be going where you're already going, but so many of the offenses that we have on the books are, are as we call, left of bang, right? Yeah. So if the facilitation, the participation, and doing anything on behalf of a terrorist group yeah. um, is what you're trying to get pre-bang, yeah. terrorist group of one, right? It's yeah. going to be hard to charge any of those facilitation, participation, early supporting kind of role crimes before an actual offense when you're dealing with a lone actor. Is that kind of where you're going? Yes, exactly. And, and so, so in practice, then, are we creating a sort of vacuum here for calling a certain type of terrorist actor, which I think anyone would recognize a terrorist actor, as terrorism under the criminal law? Yeah, and it, just, and it means that the tools that we've created in our criminal code to catch stuff earlier and earlier, preempt, more preemptively, right, when we're dealing with a lone actor, may no longer be available, be, well, based on this judgment, are no longer available when you're dealing with a terrorist group of one, right? Because if you're trying, to, you're trying to say facilitating the actions of a terrorist group, right, actions pre-bang, but the terrorist group is a person in and of themselves, you can't facilitate yourself. Therefore, all of those pre-bang offenses are, not all of them, but many of them are off the table. So, it's, so we've created this vacuum in terms of the offenses that we could apply to preemptively disrupt somebody and put them in the criminal justice system before they commit a violent action are not available for loan actor groups. And so the, the one caveat there is they are really clear that we're talking about 83.2 and not the other offenses. But how would it not apply to the other offense? Would it not, would this not apply then to the other offenses? 
Well, that's, that's, they say they don't make a decision on that and it's not necessarily the same and that 83.2 seems different because of the way it's worded, that it seems odd to me committing an offense on behalf, but, uh, but it's then, as I think Leah is implying here, it, it's hard to then go back to the 83.18 and say, how can you participate in a terrorist group if you're the terrorist group? If you can't commit it on the behalf of a terrorist group and you're so the is the, group, is the problem here the word participating? Well, so I, I think the problem is that we're trying to tie everything to a terrorist group. And this gets back to... Like, the, like uh, circa 2001, right? Which is when our terrorism laws came out, right? That's right. Because it's really hard to prove this. We've talked about this before. It's really hard to prove ideology. So what's the easiest way to prove ideology? Associate an individual with someone else. Hope that someone else has a clear ideology. ISIS has a whole bunch of material that makes their ideology clear. Associate with them, impute their ideology to the individual, and bang, I have it proved. So it's easier to prove my association with a group, or if I can sort of imply that there's a group with a particular ideology. When you have these sort of lone actors where that's more difficult, uh, then you get into these sort of problems. And so there's, there's an alternative, which is to say, well, we're not talking about a group. We never should have been talking about a group in the first place. We were talking about a terrorist activity, which is what you were getting into, right, Stephanie? I mean, this is, why are you talking about a group? There's one individual here. The problem who's, is that- Who's you, motivated by an ideology, in theory, and then carries out uh, uh, an act to further that ideology. Right. In whole or in part. So, like, look, I'm not the expert here in law like you guys are, but, like, my understanding is that this did not need to be more complicated than it already is. And this seems to be doing just that. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, the first thing I would look to is say, well, maybe, maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe this doesn't rule out loan actors because there's an alternative. And that alternative is 83.27 of the criminal code. And that section says, notwithstanding anything in this act, a person convicted of an indictable offense, attempted murder here, aggravated assault here, whatever you want, other than an offense for which the sentence of imprisonment for life is imposed as a minimum punishment, where the act is constitutes an offense, also constitutes terrorist activity, is liable to imprisonment for life. So what is, how do I read that? I read that as saying it's sort of the other side of that 83.2. So 83.2 is your participation in the terrorist group, but you actually committed the offense. And this is your committing a terrorist activity offense. Okay. So um, I just wanted to jump in and say that, right, any terrorist, any indictable offense, right, and this is what Michael's getting at, any crime that you commit under the criminal code or any other indictable offense under Canadian law that you do that also satisfies the definition of terrorist activity can be tried as a terrorism offense, right? And it can get you life in prison. So it's kind of the um, catch-all kind of provision, I would think, right? You still need to prove the, you know, the, the ideological or religious or political motive. You still need to prove the, the purpose um, to intimidate the public. You still need to prove the intended offense was to have a certain outcome that was, you know, very violent. But um, it can be any indictable offense that's done um, that would also meet that terrorist activity. Um, can be used. And it, again, that's stuff that can capture the, the right of bang activity, but it's still not going to catch the preparatory actions that some of the other offenses, I think, call in, are called into question now because of this alley ruling. 
And whether or not the uh, PBSC chooses to appeal, I think we'll know within days. But I think um, I think we might see an appeal here, or I, I hopefully see some cleanup to to the statutory provisions around terrorism. So, so if I can jump back in, because that is Leah's just described my my understanding of the criminal code as it has always been in the terrorism. So I, 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 right. And I mean, I, my, my non-lawyer view on this is just simply that, you know, uh, an individual already deemed not criminally responsible is not the ideal case to be testing this stuff out. It's a terrible case to be testing this stuff out. Yeah. Which, which probably then is, is my last point on this brings you back to the discussion that we've had in the past on the director of terrorism prosecutions. Uh, and why that might be a good idea, because this looks an awful lot like a case where you could have had some help from outside the region where it was being prosecuted to look at, should we be going ahead with terrorism? And, you know, and to be clear, they they would have in that the attorney general would have signed off on this. So, right. but it, it, it looks to me like this is one of those areas where a little more thinking could have gone, it probably has to go in, and this is not an indictment of them, but of, of where we're at in our criminal provisions right now. Well, what I will do is I will direct our listeners to uh, check out your excellent um, blog that you wrote for us on intrepidpodcast.com about the justice minister's mandate, where you talk a little bit more about that. But I'm cognizant everyone has to go because Leah's got to teach literally in three minutes. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on and explaining these two cases to us. Once again, everything seems like it's chaos, but uh, at least it keeps us in business. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you.